0: I'm Joshua Kage from The Christian Citizen, and this is Episode 27 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In today's episode, Deborah Jackson, Director of Operations for All Girls Aloud, joins the podcast for a conversation with Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas on her recent article, Hamilton and History, Who Tells the Story, and how one's position in the story dictates whether that story will be viewed as patriotic or traitorous. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Deborah Jackson.
1: The Reverend Dr. Deborah Jackson is the Director of Operations for All Girls Allowed, a faith-based nonprofit that restores life, value, and dignity by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, building schools, churches, and women's centers, and mobilizing churches and partners for global impact. She was previously the Director of Lifelong Learning at Yale Divinity School, Her book, *Men for Good, Fundamentals of Womanist Leadership, is available through Judson Press. And she also has a chapter in the forthcoming book, In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, also from Judson Press. Deborah, welcome to Justice, Mercy, Faith.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to have the opportunity to speak with
1: you. Good to have you with us. The jumping off point for your latest Christian Citizen article is the immensely popular musical Hamilton, which was released on the Disney Plus streaming platform this summer. You note that the musical poses the question, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? And you also note that privilege and power are central to that question. How so?
2: Well, I look at it in the sense that these were white men who were railing for their rights and their freedoms and justified in all the things that they were doing, fighting against the British, engaging in civil disobedience in some cases, and and just really, insisting upon their ability to be self-governing, even as they were marginalizing others, those who didn't own land, those who were not men, and especially those who were enslaved.
1: What are some current examples, you you talk about this in the article as well, current examples of individuals um, who have advocated for or are advocating for the same freedoms our founders fought for, but whose actions are interpreted very differently, um, interpreted as unpatriotic.
2: Absolutely, I mean, you know, this, this week we celebrated the fact that four years ago, it was four years ago that Colin Kaepernick took a knee um, in protest of uh, police brutality during the playing of the national anthem. And that action was attributed to being you know, disloyal um, and unpatriotic, and to the point where he still. Uh, ousted from football in the prime of his life really is his athletic career um, effectively blackballed for doing exactly what I think the founding fathers did protest for their rights I mean or or even you think about the the folks that are you know protesting and I've I've Participated in protests this this summer um, in in light of the George Floyd killing, Breonna Taylor, or Ahmaud Aubrey, and most recently Jacob Blake, and that scene. You know, people are labeled as being, you know, mob, a mob, or looters, or rioters, or traitorous. And it's no different than what our founding fathers did.
1: Congressman John Lewis, who died earlier this summer, wrote an essay that was published in the New York Times on the day of his funeral. You Mm -hmm. cite part of that essay in which he writes, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to say something, to do something, to stand up, speak up, speak out. Uh, That is exactly what Alexander Hamilton and others were doing in their own day, was it not?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it's, it's, it's interesting because, and, and you see it in the, in the play, um, but Hamilton gone into a very vigorous public debate with Reverend Samuel Seabury, um, who was really writing for the status quo, saying that the colonists shouldn't provoke Great Britain because of the potential ramifications. And Hamilton was saying, no, we have to speak out. In fact, everything that we're doing against the, the unjust actions of parliament it is justified and that we have to speak out and assert our rights as individuals and as citizens. And that's exactly what John Lewis was saying. If there's something that's not right, not fair, not just, you have to speak out. That's our responsibility.
1: There's another part of what Lewis wrote um, that I think relates. He, he wrote it in that essay, democracy is not a state, it is an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and a world society at peace with itself. I love that notion of uh, democracy is not a state. It's not something we can sit back and be spectators of. It's something we have to engage in. Absolutely. Individually, collectively.
2: And you know, and it's and it's interesting because it, you, you see it, it as you reflect back on history that, um, I mean, to us today, the the hypocrisy, I'll dare say, of wealthy landowners asserting their rights in you know the 1770s and forward, um, when others were oppressed and stripped of their rights, not even regarded as citizens, not even regarded as full people, um, it, in in the term in terms of like the enslaved, um, it seems ludicrous that they would demand freedoms. So now we can look back and say, oh, that's, that's crazy. And yet you have to wonder then who are we in turn marginalizing today that we don't give a second thought? We don't give a second thought to the fact that citizens who live in the District of Columbia don't have the right to vote for a president, or citizens who live in Puerto Rico or Guam or the other territories of the United States are disenfranchised the same way. You know, we rail for our freedoms while we deny others theirs. And so Mm. (laughs) democracy is not a state. It is a continuing effort. And if we don't continue, We will never build that beloved community.
1: I'm reminded of the song early in the musical Hamilton in which he sings, I'm not throwing away my shot. (laughs) Um, There is a sense in the lives of both Hamilton and Lewis of key moments, key opportunities in life to be seized. Um, And not merely for the good of that individual, but for the good of the whole
2: yeah, and I think we're at one of those pivot points. I mean, I, you know, I found myself applauding um, both the NBA and the WNBA this week. Um, the women standing with shirts, t-shirts that spelled out Jacob Blake, and on the back of the shirts, seven bullet holes, and then walking off the court or the Milwaukee Bucks who started this that said, you know what, we we can't play basketball right now. There are things that are more important than being in this bubble and being entertainment for the country. There are more important issues. And you think about it, these young men and women are about the same age Hamilton was when he started writing. Um, and, and saying, I'm not throwing away my shot, in the words of uh, Lynn manuel Miranda, you know, we have to seize this moment to speak out. And, and thankfully, it's happening all over the world, really
1: the connection you make uh, between hamilton and lewis is an interesting one to me and as you say they they were both young men when they first made their mark hamilton was 21 in 1776 and many of the founders i mean we look back at them now and think they were they were all they were all in their 20s 30s not all of them but many of them yeah. uh, lewis was uh 23 youngest person to speak at the March on Washington in 1963. Um, and that's what we see today too, don't we? In, in the movements that we're seeing the Black Lives Matter movement, um, a lot of it is, is youth and young adults who are marching. Um, that's where we see the energy today.
2: And I, and I think that's right because, you know, what happens is that over time, we do become a little desensitized or jaded um or or just caught up in the environment that that you think that's just how it is um you know i remember my grandfather talking about the fact that if a white person was passing on the sidewalk that Black people would jump off the sidewalk because that's just what you did. And I think about my 17-year-old son who would be utterly horrified by that. How dare you think I should move because you're coming? Um, It would never occur to him to function in that way. And I think that's what we see in these younger adults and these emerging generations that are saying, well, that's just ludicrous. Why would I do that? Why would I believe that way? Why would I function that way? And they cause us all to re-examine ourselves, ideally for the good
1: yeah ca- cause us to question some pretty uh, deeply ingrained practices that uh, we may not even be able to see clearly um, yeah. for having you also write about history um, having its eyes on us now um, as you as you think in this moment um, in which there is so much division and um, Are you hopeful um, we'll rise to the occasion, as you say, and get into what Lewis called good trouble as needed?
2: Um, It it depends on what day. Mm. But you asked that question because I know when I, you know, earlier this week, and this is a raw week, but so many of them have been of late. But earlier this week when I saw... Um, the the videotape of of Jacob Blake and I, I couldn't watch it. Um, I I found myself despairing. Um, I found myself despairing when the attorney general's report almost seemed to justify that he was shot in the back seven times almost at point blank range because there was a knife in the floor on the floorboards of his car, even though Blake himself had already disclosed to the police that there was a knife in his car. I mean there was just you know the way that the the narrative was being offered was almost like justification for what seemed unjustifiable. And then days later we hear of a 17 year old from Illinois who decides to be a vigilante and comes and shoots protesters, even as protest- other protesters are pointing him out to the police, and he 's never shot he 's allowed to return home and so in those moments, in moments like that, I despair because I think, well how how can this be?" you know, what justification other than color of skin is there for this inequitable treatment? But then there are other days when I have hope, when I watch people take to the streets or even now having heard that people from Milwaukee started walking some 20 days ago, to join what is now the virtual march on Washington people heading to Washington DC to reenact what is today the anniversary of the 50, the 57th anniversary of the march on Washington so i have hope that we would continue to carry out this demand for justice even as I lament that 57 years later, there's still a need to do it.
1: Concluding thoughts for our listeners?
2: We have an opportunity, I think, to try to eradicate kind of unjust practices upon which this nation has been built, the disenfranchisement, the usury of others, the discrimination of others, and we have a responsibility to try to make that real, if not for us, for those who are following us. And I. I pray that my son could grow up in a world that wouldn't regard him by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And he still deals with that disenfranchisement. But maybe my grandchildren or my grandchildren's children could grow up. I might not see it, I won't see it but maybe they can. And if I can do my piece now, maybe that can happen.
1: Well, I wanna thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and believing that this is important because it is.
1: Well said, Deborah's article Hamilton and History, Who Tells the Story can be found at christiancitizen.us. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, which includes newly published content, recent articles, and links to what we're reading elsewhere.
0: Thank you to this week's guest, Deborah Jackson. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Gagey. Stories are copy-edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Carcuff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Peyton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.